podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast on Thursday, the 16th of December, brought to you by EPLindex.com and a presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geoblocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot and using the code EPL599. At checkout, we'll get you your first month for just one quid. So libertyshield.com, EPL 599 at checkout, one quid for the first month, $6.99 a month thereafter, instant download onto your devices, get using straight away, no long-term contract, libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use Red 10 on the Anfield Index shop and EPL 10 on the EPL Index shop to get 10% off at checkout. Whole new line of mugs and merchandise up. If the code doesn't work, just give it a bit of time and go back to it. Etsy are having some technical issues at the moment. But those codes will work. Get yourself those last-minute Christmas presents you've been struggling with. And if you're an Arsenal fan and fancy a collector's item, maybe a Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang mug, because it looks like he may well be on his way out the door in January. Right, folks. Three games in the Premier League last night because, well, the Premier League must have been listening yesterday when I said Burnley versus Watford would be largely unwatchable. They must have agreed, and the game was cancelled. Now, we didn't know before the game that Watford had COVID issues, but it was discovered while they were en route that Watford have COVID issues and the game was called off. So we only had the three games. In the first one, Wolves won Brighton nil at Brighton. Great win for Wolves and, and a deserved win for Wolves. Now, Brighton can feel a little bit hard done by Purely on the basis that I think Jose Sa should have been sent off. I think Jose Sa strikes Aaron Conley in the back of the head on a corner. Now, Conley makes a bit of a meal on it, but you can clearly see a sharp movement of the hand into the back of Conley's head. It is done on purpose, and I think Jose Sa should have been sent off. But from there, Wolves were the better team. They created the better opportunities. They hit the post. They hit the crossbar. Now, the one that hit the crossbar, admittedly, was an attempted cross. But they did hit the post. They missed a good 1v1 chance. Well, actually, to be fair, it was a 3v1 chance when Adama 
ran with Trinke on one side and Pedence to the other side. He slipped in Pedence, who shot straight at Sanchez. Trinke missed a good opportunity as well after good work from Adama, who'd come on early after Huang got hurt. Wolves playing without Raul Jimenez last night and frankly looked quite good without him. I, I did think the movement and the kind of creative running from the front three was very, very good. They had no eight nearly last night either. Marcal came in. He's been out of the team most of the year. He played quite well. Moutinho and Neves, I thought, controlled the game. Now, Alec Mwepu had two good opportunities for Brighton. One, one really good opportunity and one decent opportunity, I suppose, the fairest way to describe them. But Wolves won the game with Romain Saiz scoring the only goal just before halftime. A terrible corner that found its way to Neves on the edge of the penalty box. It's a glorious little pass from Neves to Saiz, and it's a great finish. A really, really great finish. So Wolves, absolutely good value for the win in this. We are now looking at three full months since Brighton won a Premier League game by the time they play next. They haven't won since September 19th. They've played 11 games since. They play Manchester United on Saturday or as things stand, they're due to play Manchester United. We don't know yet if that game will go ahead considering United's midweek game was called off and considering Brighton asked for this game to be called off. Apparently, both Brighton and Wolves asked for this one to be called off and both of them were denied. Um, I think it's very concerning that Brighton haven't won in so long. I think, look... Not that Graham Potter should be under any pressure or anything like that, but some questions do need to be asked here. Or he needs to be asking questions of those above him as well, such as, where is the striker I need? But he does make a bit of a rod for his own back with his insistence. Like, when you're in desperate need of a goal in a Premier League game, and Adam Lalana is what you can bring off the bench, that's not good. That's not good at all. Now, they obviously did have some injuries. They had some, I think they had some COVID cases. But they still had a strong 11 out. They changed shape. They went to a back four and played three across the middle. And I do like the midfield three. Mwepu, Basuma and Motor, All very good. But, you know, Solly March in your front three. Veltman and Byrne as the two centre-backs. Aaron Connolly is your nine. You've got problems there. They do have Duncan Webster to come back in, obviously. And I do wonder if maybe he will look at sticking with a back four, playing Duncan Webster as the two with Lamptey and Cucurella either side, keeping that midfield three. They're all young. They're all very explosive, very athletic players. And then if you go Trossard one side, Mopay the other, depending on his disciplinary situation, you could bring in McAllister either into the team, but they've got to get that number nine. That's got to be top priority for Brighton for January, is finding a number nine who can put the ball in the back of the net. If they sit 13th now, 
They won four of their first five games and haven't won in 11. They were fifth. They're now 13th. That's just, it's a terrible run. Now, admittedly, they've only lost four games, three in that 11 game run. They've drawn the other eight. So they're very, very difficult to beat, but we knew that anyway. Only conceded 17 goals this season. You've got the top three. You've got Wolves. And then you've got Brighton. Now Tottenham might say, oh, we've only conceded 17 as well. You've played three games less. So, all two games less. So, shush. And you've got the fifth best defence in the league. You're giving yourself a chance. The problem is, you've only got... Norwich and Wolves, who've scored less goals. You've got the third worst attack in the league. And again, Burnley have only scored 14 as well, but Burnley have played a game less. And no one expects Burnley to score many goals. Maybe we shouldn't expect Brighton to score many goals either. Certainly not on the last two seasons' worth of evidence. They'll be disappointed, but Wolves will be thrilled. Eighth in the league. After the bad start, they really have turned things around. They're very difficult to beat. You'd obviously want them scoring more goals. Second worst attack in the, in the division. Is, you know, it's, it's not something you want to be shouting about. But they're so good defensively. They're such a clever team. They use the ball really well up until the moment where they either have to make a decision on who to pass to to put the ball in the net or the actual act of putting the, the ball in the back of the net. But Bruno Lage has done an excellent job. An excellent job. He's got to be considered a contender for manager of the year at this point. Considering he had very little money to spend in the summer, he's playing with a shape that's not necessarily his own. He would rather play a back four. And hopefully in January and maybe in the summer, they'll back him and allow him to bring in a couple of players that will facilitate the move to a back four. If he could play something like the 4-2-3-1 or the 4-4-2 he used at Benfica, it could be very interesting when Neto comes back, have him on the left with Ignuri behind him. Trinkio on the right with Semedo behind him. You'll still have your Neves plus either Matinho or Dendonker pairing in midfield. Jimenez is the nine. Either Pedence is the ten or Huang up alongside Jimenez. I think you add a centre-back into that team next to, say, Max Kilman, and that works really well. I'd still want to upgrade the goalkeeper, but look, the bottom line is he's having a good season. Now, I think him, like a fellow we'll talk about in a minute, eventually they will get exposed. But for now, Jose Sa's having a good season and Wolves are having a good season and congrats to them for it. Next game of the night, Crystal Palace 2, Southampton 2. Palace go one up after two minutes. Really good 
tackle from Will Hughes in the middle of the park, wins the ball, gives it to Trinkia or to Trinkia to Edward. Edward drives at the Southampton defence, who back off and back off. He slips it to Wolf Zaha, and again they back off some more. And Zaha puts the ball into the back of the net past a hapless Willie Caballero, who really should have done better. Wasn't a particularly great shot from Zaha, but Caballero got nowhere close to it. From there, it looked like Palace were going to spank Southampton. For about 20 minutes, it looked like Palace would spank Southampton. But Saints screw back into the game and they equalise on 32 minutes. James Ward-Prowse with an absolutely sensational free kick, about 22, 23 yards out, just bends it into the top corner. Gives Jack Butland making a rare start, absolutely no chance. And Saints are back in the game. And then four minutes later, Saints are ahead. Armando Broja, who wasn't expected to play, overcame the issue he had from the weekend, collects the ball about 30 yards from goal, turns, gets it out of his feet, and hits a phenomenally good low shot that just doesn't give Butland any chance at all into the bottom corner. Two brilliant goals from Southampton. Absolutely phenomenal strikes. And Brohia is a real talent. I don't know what Chelsea's plans are for him. But he is a gem. And if they sell him, there will be a queue of teams lining up to get him. He has big time potential. And it speaks volumes of the the caliber of that Chelsea Academy when you look around at the players doing bits in the Premier League. Not just your Mason Mounts, your Reese James, your Callum Hudson-Odoi's and your, your Chalabas who are playing in the Chelsea team. But bro, yeah, Livermento as well. Mark wehi has been outstanding this season. Declan Rice was in their academy. He's having a great season. But that, that academy just is the standout one right now in terms of player production. You, know, you look at Fikayo Tomori starting for AC Milan, having a great season. And you really have to be impressed by the work that Chelsea have done. Now, you can also look at it and say it's a little bit soulless that they just churn out players and very few of them make the grade at Chelsea. But it's one of the ways that they'll become self-sufficient. You see how much money they bring in from selling on youth team players. Tariq Lamptey, of course, I missed him out. He's another outstanding player who, whether he plays for England or not, I don't know. Uh, he may decide to play. I think it's Ghana that he's eligible for. But he's, he's certainly one that's in that mix of English right-backs, as, as is Tino Livermento. Now, Livermento, I believe, can play for Portugal through his dad and Scotland through his mum. And I wonder if he'd have interest in playing for Scotland. I think it'd be incredible if Scotland could get him because they've got good left backs. And I do like Patterson at Rangers, but I do wonder if maybe he's a bit more suited to being a, the right side of a back three long term. I could be wrong on that. Rangers fans might disagree. But to me, he just 
seems like someone who might be a bit more suited to that kind of role. You look at what Chelsea have done this season in terms of sales. Fakayo Tomore sold 27 million they brought in for him. Izzy Brown left in a free. That was a disappointing one. Mark Wehi, they got 21 million for. Lewis Bate, he went to Leeds, 1.5 million. Miles Pearl, uh, Perth Harris, 1.3 million to Brentford. Livermento, 5 million. They do have a buyback on him. Uh, Danel Simeo, they got 1.5 million for him. 36 million for Tammy Abraham. 3.1 million for Ike Ukbo. Like, that's covering large chunks of their own transfer expenditure. And then they've got a ton more players out on loan. Levi Caldwell, Nathan Baxter, Billy Gilmore. You've got Conor Gallagher on loan playing out of his skin. Brohia, as I mentioned. Tino Angerin went on loan to Locomotive Moscow. They've got a, a big buy option on him. Like 20 million or something. You could put together a hell of a Chelsea Academy team currently 24 and under. And they'd have a real crack at a European spot in the Premier League. Now, don't know what they do about the goalkeeper position. But, you know, say a back three of Reese James, Tamori and Gwehi. With Livermento as the left wing back and Lamptey as the right wing back. Gallagher and Declan Rice as your midfield two. Mount as your 10. And then Tammy and Brogia up front. And you still got Billy Gilmore. You've still got Ian Matson. You've still got uh, Angerin. And a load of others. It is sensational what they've done. And both clubs that played in this game last night really are benefiting from it. They really are benefiting from it. I wonder if Palace regret not getting Livermento because they, the one thing they really lack in their outfield 11 is that right back. Ward, to his credit, has been a, a good servant, but Livermento would make a huge difference there. They equalise through the most unlikely source. Now, normally when someone says that, it's, you know, a centre-back, a left-back, maybe the goalkeeper scores. But no, Jordan Ayew hadn't scored in about 14 years. Uh, he equalised on 65. Now, I've just said Livermento would make a big difference for Palace, but he was poor on this goal. He doesn't react quickly enough as the ball breaks in the, in, in the penalty box. Edward gets it. Has a, has a shot. It's saved by Caballero. It breaks to Ayo At a very tight angle, to his credit, he taps home with minimal fuss. And it is a good finish. And a draw is a deserved result here for Palace. They didn't deserve to lose this game. They definitely deserved something from it. I saw Southampton fans slagging Palace off afterwards, saying, oh, you were celebrating the draw. I'm not really sure they were. I think this was a good result for both teams. Given the performance, Palace, yeah, 
one win from the last six games or seven games isn't great. But at the same time, look at it as four points from two games after a bad run of three straight losses. It's hard not to like what Palace are doing. It's hard not to like their team. And with Saints, I mean, there's a lot to like about them. It's admirable how they stick to what they want to do. How Hassan Hootl will not bend from what he wants to do. I would question some of his team selections. But at the same time, he's working with a squad that lacks in certain areas. And he's trying to wring every little bit he can out of them. He'll take this point and be very, very happy with it. Every point he can get is one more point towards safety. If the Premier League was strong, I think Saints would have some problems. But there are five really bad teams in the league this year. And I include Burnley in that. Watford, obviously. Newcastle, obviously. Norwich, obviously. And Leeds are terrible this season. They're absolutely shocking. So I think Saints get lucky purely on the basis that there are worse teams than them in this division. Final game from last night then. Arsenal 2, West Ham 0. Arsenal deserved the win. Let's say that first and foremost. They were the better team. They dominated the game. This is one of their best performances of the season. But, but, the referee was appalling. Absolutely appalling. So Arsenal go 1-0 up through Gabriel Martinelli, who started on the left over Smith Rowe and had an outstanding game. His goal was pure Henri. Slipped through the middle, coming in off the left, and just rolls it past the keeper into the far corner. Tremendous goal, really well worked, and fully deserved. Fully deserved. Then Soufal gets booked for a non-foul. He wins the ball, and somehow he gets booked. And then on 67 minutes... I really don't know how to describe this. Soufal wins the ball in a tackle with Lacazette in the box. Lacazette goes down, rolls around holding his shin. The replay clearly shows Soufal wins the ball. But the referee gives a penalty and sends him off. VAR looks at it, sees that Soufal clearly, clearly won the ball and doesn't overturn the decision. Absolutely appalling. Absolutely shocking stuff from a terrible, terrible referee. And that spoils the game because now West Ham are down to 10 men. 
Lacazette steps up and misses the penalty. It's a good save by Fabianski. But from there, it's not a contest. And Arsenal just have more of the ball, more of the possession, more of the territory, more of the opportunities. And Emile Smith-Rowe makes it 2-0. A really good goal on 87 minutes. Really well worked down the right-hand side. He cuts in left foot. Game over. Arsenal deserved the win. There's no doubt about it. But the referee spoiled it with that stupid, stupid decision. And VAR not having the morals, the mentality, the courage to overturn such an appalling decision really makes me question whether or not they're still looking for this thing to fail. Because my belief is that the referees in England are purposely trying to make this fail. Because they don't want it. They don't like it. Even though it's well, it's extra work for them. But maybe they're not getting paid any extra. I don't know. But either way, it's shocking. It is absolutely... No other country is struggling with the imp- implementation of VAR in the way that the English game is. No other country. The Champions League, it works better. Uh, international football, it works better. It works better in the Bundesliga, Ligue 1, uh, Serie A, La Liga. It works better everywhere except in the Premier League, where it has been tragically poor. And we saw a bunch of examples at the weekend of decisions that were given that VAR could have overturned and didn't, didn't have the bottle to do it, Decisions that weren't given, the VAR looked at and made no ruling on, didn't tell the referee to even go and look at it again. This clear and obvious thing is nonsense. It's just an excuse. They're not going to look make their mates look bad or their superiors look bad on television. But no other country is having as many problems as the Premier League and English football are having. And I believe it's because they're sabotaging the opportunity for VAR. So after the game, Arsenal fans got very excited, obviously. They're now fourth, and congrats to them for that. They are fourth in the league. They're one point clear of West Ham with the same games played. They're two points ahead of Manchester United, who have played a game less. They're four points ahead of Tottenham, who've played three games less. And they're seven points behind Chelsea, eight points behind Liverpool, both of whom have, have played a game less. Again, all I can say is Fugazi. Simple as that. Fugazi. This is not a good team. There are things that the Arsenal fans should be very hopeful of. There are great prospects. There's the makings of a good defence. There are three attacking midfielders in Saka, Odegaard and Smithrow, who are outstanding prospects. There's another attacker in Martinelli, who's a huge prospect. But this team is is a long way from being anything resembling good. Look at their record. 
They have won four games against teams in the top 14 this season. Four. Against the top three, they've lost all three games. They've yet to score a goal, and they've conceded 12. The gulf between them and the top three is enormous. They beat West Ham. They beat an out-of-sorts Tottenham who sacked their manager shortly after. And they were lucky to win that game. They destroyed them in the first half, but were lucky to hang on to their lead. They beat an out-of-sorts Aston Villa who sacked their manager. They beat Leicester and needed Aaron Ramsdale to turn in the best performance of his career. And that's it. Those are their wins against teams in the top 14. They drew at Brighton. They drew at Crystal Palace. They lost to Brentford. They lost to Everton. They lost to Manchester United. And they got smacked by the top three. Nine wins this season. Five of them have come against Southampton. Awful. Watford. Awful. Burnley. Awful. Newcastle, awful. Norwich, awful. And their four wins against the bottom four, they scored five goals. They also got very excited about the fact that Aaron Ramsdale has kept eight clean sheets this season. And one bright spark tweeted out, Ramsdale with the second most clean sheets in the Premier League despite not playing the first three games. Eight clean sheets in 14 games. So, Allison has nine and Ederson has nine. So, therefore, he doesn't have the second most clean sheets. So, I pointed this out. And another bright spark responded, well, if nine is the highest, then eight is the second highest. That's not really how this works, Sparky. Not how it works at all. Allison and Ederson have the joint most, which means at best, Ramsdale can have the third most. And they went to great lengths to tell me he's kept more clean sheets than... Edouard Mendy and then got very upset when I pointed out that Mendy's conceded less goals than Aaron Ramsdale and have a look at the teams who he's kept his clean sheets against Norwich worst attack in the Premier League they've scored eight goals this season Burnley third worst attack in the Premier League 14 goals Brighton Joint third worst with Burnley, 14 goals. Leicester, okay. Leicester scored 27. That was a great performance. Watford, 21 goals. Okay, they've had a decent enough attack. Let's not pretend they're a good team. Newcastle, 17 goals scored. Awful. And they're awful. Southampton. 
16 goals scored. Only Brighton, Burnley, Wolves and Norwich have conceded less. And West Ham. Credit to you. Two of those clean sheets are impressive. The rest are not. Not every clean sheet is created equal. Oh, but they're all teams in the Premier League. What are you saying? Some of those teams aren't Premier League calibre? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That is what I'm saying. And I will be proven correct by that because three of them will go down. Three of them will be championship teams next year. Not every team that's in the Premier League is good enough to be in the Premier League. Not every team that's in the league is Premier League calibre. That's why they go down. It's not a murderer's row top to bottom. The bottom five, the bottom six, to be fair, in the league this season, have been largely awful. There's good players at Norwich. There's a couple of good players at Newcastle. Burnley have a couple of good players and a very good manager. There's a couple of good players at Watford. There's a couple of good players and a very good manager at Leeds. There's a couple of good players and a very good manager at Southampton, or a good manager at Southampton. But the teams have been awful. Burnley have played 15 games and won once. Newcastle have played 16 and won once. Norwich have played 17 and won once. These are not good teams. Only halfway through the season. They haven't even got the three wins yet. Southampton and Leeds, they've got three wins. Watford, to their credit, they've got four, but they've lost 11 times. If you lose 11 times in 16 games, you're not a good football team. The level that you're playing at is too good for you. You need to be playing at a lower level. It's as simple as that. Burnley stay in the division year on year because Dyche finds ways. Norwich are a yo-yo club. Watford, well, who knows what they are. Leeds are still fairly new to the Premier League. Southampton have been treading water for years now. As have Newcastle, who've not exactly been Premier League stalwarts over the last 10 years either. They've been down a couple of times. So don't sit there and tell me Ramsdale's having this incredible season because he's, he's keeping out the bottom four. Because I'm just going to laugh. Because he, like the team, is fugazi. It's fake. It's not real. He didn't go from being the worst keeper in the league two seasons in a row to all of a sudden being the best keeper in the league or one of the best keepers in the league. That didn't happen. What you're doing is you're playing... Number one, Arsenal play a pretty negative brand of football, if we're being honest. Last night, for the first time all season, they managed to attain a, per, a positive goal differential. They've scored 23 goals this season. Let's all have a round of applause for Arsenal. 23 goals this season. Well done. Chelsea, Tuchel ball, Tuchel ban. The man is compared to the Taliban for crimes against football. His team has still scored 38 goals. West Ham, under David Moyes, not exactly known as the progressive manager. 28 goals. Manchester United, they've been a tragic mess all season. 26 goals. Villa, sack the manager. They've got as many goals as you. Crystal Palace have scored more than you. Leicester City, having a bad season. 
have scored more than you. Do I really need to compare you to Liverpool and Manchester City? Really? Arsenal play a fairly negative brand of football. They're just not a very good team at this point. There's good pieces. There's promise. And maybe in a couple of years with a real manager, you'll be somewhere. Right now, if I had to bet, I'd bet you finish eighth. City will finish above you. Liverpool will finish above you. Chelsea will finish above you. Tottenham will finish above you. I'd back Manchester United to finish above you. I'll back West Ham to finish above you. And they may be seven points back, though with a game in hand right now. They may have had a bad start. But I'll back Leicester City to finish above Arsenal this season. Arsenal will finish eighth in the Premier League this season, is my prediction. There's holes in the defence. They've got three good defenders and one good ball player. They've got nothing really in midfield that you want to get too excited about. They've got no reliable goal scorer. And their three best attacking players are all youngsters. Now, Odegaard's 22, turning 23 this week. So he's, you know, he's a bit older than Smith Rowe and Saka. But still, you're going to rely on kids all year. Do me a favour. We've got three games tonight. Three games to look forward to. Liverpool versus Newcastle. I don't think it's going to be an overly competitive game, if I'm honest. No Nat Phillips for the Reds. No Adrian. No Harvey Elliott. Curtis Jones and Divock Origi. Unlikely to be fit enough to play. For the tune, no Federico Fernandez, No Paul Dummett. As a combined eleven. It's the Liverpool 11. Whatever 11 Jurgen Klopp puts out, those are the best 11 players on the pitch. Prediction, 4-0 to Liverpool. Leicester versus Tottenham, though, I do think this could be a good game. I do find it very strange that this game is going ahead. Leicester are currently ruined. Ruined with injuries. And COVID. Wes Fafana is out. Johnny Evans is out. Kagler Sayonchu is out. All of them are injured. All unlikely to be back until Boxing Day, I believe. If they could slow their return until January, that'd be great. Then you've got the COVID mess. You've got Yannick Vestergaard, Ayosi Perez, Adamola Luckman, Kelechi Iheanacho, Vontae Daly-Campbell, Filip Benkovic, who could have been in line for a start. He's out. James Justin is still out, and Hamza Chowdhury is out. I wonder if he's got COVID as well. That's a lot of players to be out. Now, Tottenham have obviously had COVID issues as well. Emerson. Brian Hill, Hyungmin Son, Ollie Skip, Dane Scarlett, Lucas Mora, they're all out with COVID. Sergio Regulon, they hope to have back for this one. I think the hope is that both Son and Emerson will be fit enough to play in this game, but COVID can be strange. It can be 
tough to get back from when you you know when you expect them back. And Christian Romero is out until the new year. You would have to fancy Tottenham to win this game, given Leicester have no centre backs available. So Wilf and Didi will almost certainly be one of the centre backs. And my the only thing I can assume is that they'll try like Ryan Bertrand in the middle of the part in the middle of the defence, or they'll bring up somebody from the youth team. A lot of Leicester fans having you know, are very upset by this. And, and understandably, I think this game should be called off. And it wouldn't surprise me if it is called off between now and, and kickoff. But then Norwich and Villa went ahead and they both had COVID problems. But just remember, when you're crying about not having any centre-backs for one or two games, Liverpool did this for five months last season. They played Nat Phillips, who they couldn't give away to a championship club. And Reese Williams, who'd been in the conference the year before and still finished third. Um, combined 11 of Tottenham and Leicester. Lloris was a better goalkeeper than Casper. I don't know if he still is. He probably still is. There's not much between them. There used to be a good gap. There's not much anymore. I, w- I would still aim with, I still side with Larice. Ricardo Pereira is your right wing back. Regulon is your left wing back. We're doing everybody fit here because otherwise I'd be all day trying to figure out who's available. Um, I would say Fafana, Romero, and James Justin is your back three. Helemans and Ndidi is your central midfield. Harvey Barnes, Harry Kane and Youngman Son is your front three. And I'm going to say Tottenham win this game 2-0. And then we get Chelsea versus Everton. Pre-kickoff, Chelsea's win probability is rated at 80%. That's a fairly impressive go. Um, Chelsea, injury-wise, Kovacic is out. Ben Chilwell is out. Remember a week ago when Chelsea had the worst injury crisis in history? Yeah, not so much. Everton are in rag and ruin, though. No Richarlison, he's out. Calvert-Lewin, still not back. Tom Davies is out. Luca Dina is is ill. He was expected to start. Benitez said he was going to start, and now he's ill. Alan is injured, but he wants to play apparently. Seamus Coleman has an injury. Maybe it's mortification after his carry on against Crystal Palace. Yeri Mina is out, and Andros Townsend is out. None of this is particularly good for for Everton. Travelling to Stamford Bridge. Now, admittedly, Chelsea haven't been themselves recently. I think they've dropped points in three of their last six games. Lost to West Ham a couple of weeks ago. Well, just over a week ago. You would expect Chelsea to win this game, even if our, even if Everton were at full strength. But with Everton missing, in particular, Calvert-Loon and Richarlison, they've got no attacking threat at all, bar to Mary Gray. Chelsea should win this game comfortably. I'll say 2-0. 
And for a combined 11, we'll go Mendy. James, obviously right back. Luca Dini is better than Chilwell. I'm going to play a back four, which means I'm not having... I'm not having Rudiger in a back four. I'm certainly not having Silva in a back four. I'll take Christensen. I'll take Ben Godfrey. The midfield is old Chelsea. It's Kovacic, it's Jorginho, and it's Kante. Mount. Mount behind Lukaku and Richarlison would be fun. Yeah, that's what we'll go with. Um, obviously, Tuchel will be the manager of that team. But yeah, we'll say 2-0. So um, I've got Liverpool winning comfortably. I've got Tottenham winning. I've got Chelsea winning. And I've got a break, so I'll see you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, it is Thursday, so it is questions day. We've got a few, so I'm going to run through them as quickly as I can. First question I have is from Roshan Orr 27. What would be your captain's 11? 11 players who are captains of their club, and who would captain this side? So... I saw this one because he sent it in a couple of days ago. I saw this one in advance and thought I would put together my team. I was disappointed when I looked around and realized that the quality and the caliber of captain is vastly diminished from where it was even 10 years ago. Manuel Nauer is the goalkeeper I've gone with. Hugo Lloris was a, an honorary mention, but I've gone with Nauer. I've got Aspilicueta right back. From Chelsea, obviously. Gea of Valencia at left back. Lewis Dunk and Cialini as my central defenders. A two man midfield of Koke and Busquets. Three behind my striker, I've got Ribery, I've got Insignia, and I've got Royce, and I've got Chiro Immobile up front. Ribery is in because he's Ribery. Don't question it. Don't disagree with it. Just accept it and move on with your lives. And Cialini will be the captain of that without question. Um, Naz, keen to find out who you rate as the best controlling midfielder in the world. How would you rank Modric, Thiago and Verratti? So I would say Cruz is more of the controller. Tony Cruz is more of the controller than Modric. Modric is more of a playmaker. I would say Thiago 1, Verratti 2, Tony Cruz 3. But I can understand if people disagree. I would, th I think Thiago is the best of the three. Being honest, I also think he's better than Luka Modric. Um, right, Isaac Gilding. Would you straight swap Bobby Firmino for Joao Felix? A lot of rumours saying Joao Felix will leave, but they'd need a sizable offer. I doubt Liverpool have the cash. And as unique as Bobby is, I think Atletico might be one of the few places where he'd have some value. 
In real life, I think there's zero chance of this happening. But Joe is so young and versatile, I really think someone like Klopp and Liverpool's other attackers could get him to new levels. Him, Trent, Thiago and Mo combining an attack would be monstrous. I do agree with absolutely everything you've said. I don't think there's any chance of a straight swap. But I do think if Bobby was on the market, Atletico would 100% be in for him. 100% Atletico Madrid would be one of the teams in for him. Him and Griezmann would work really well. Without a doubt, him and Griezmann would work really well. I don't know where Joe fits in a Liverpool team, is my only hesitation. Now, what I will say is, in recent weeks, actually, no, for, for the majority of this season, we have seen Liverpool in possession operate as more of a 4 4 2 with the right sided midfield or a 4 2 3 1 with the right-sided midfielder playing either as a right-winger or a 10, depending on whether it's Harvey Elliott, Oxlade-Chamberlain, or Jordan Henderson. So, if you were to say, Jeff Felix is going to be Liverpool's false nine, out of position, out of possession, but in possession, he's actually going to play just off Mo Salah, who's going to shift from right-wing to central, Joe will play off him with Oxlade-Chamberlain or Harvey Elliott on the right, Mane on the left, and Fabinho and Thiago behind him. Then I think that works really, really well. Then I think you will start to get the best out of Joe Felix. So I would happily throw a large sum along with Bobby. As much as I love Bobby, if I could get Joe, I would do that deal. If I could, if it was Bobby and 40 million, I think I'd do that deal fairly quickly. Um, right, Owen Hurley. Following on from the chat we had about Darwin, Darwin Nunes, I'm looking at who might need a striker next summer. Assuming Mbappe to Madrid is done and dusted, Kane stays put at Spurs. Can you rank three of the following forwards? for each club in accordance with need and style. So basically who the priority should be. So, okay, so Guy is telling me now that Leicester versus Spurs is off tonight. That's not a surprise at all. There's so much COVID between both camps that it would just be unri- it would be wrong to play play that game. It's Matt Law reporting it. He's got good connections at Tottenham. It is going to mean that Tottenham's fixture list gets really, really slammed. But at the same time, can't be taking risks. Um, Right. Back to the question. The clubs that Owen has mentioned, Manchester City, PSG, Arsenal, Dortmund, Bayern Munich, AC Milan, Juventus, and Liverpool. So the players he's mentioned, Haaland, Vlahovic, Isak, Felix, Osimian, Darwin Nunes, Dybala, Chiesa, Guri, Jonathan David, Plazak, and Yusuf N. Naziri. So I'll start with Manchester City. Now, obviously they wanted a number nine in the summer. They were very, very keen to get Harry Kane. It didn't work out for them. 
I think City look best when everything is moving. Now, the best City was the Sterling, Aguero, Sané front three. And if they still had Sané, I would say, go and buy yourself a number nine. But they don't. Now, Phil Foden does a decent approximation of Sané, but it's a waste of him, and he's a very different type of player. I think City look better with Foden as, like, the false nine. So I would say for City, what they should do is look for someone who can play as part of that carousel, who could play during different portions of the game as the right-sided forward, the left-sided forward, the nine, and as one of the eights. I think Joe Felix could do that for them. But I think Federico Chiesa is the number one choice that I would say of this list, Federico Chiesa makes the most sense. The other one I would say, he's not on this list, but he said I could, could add in if, if I wanted, Mikel Oyarzabal. I think he would be a great fit for City. And I would go Felix three. So Chiesa, Oyarzabal, Felix would be the three I would recommend most for Man City. PSG with Neymar and Messi, I think you kind of want an unselfish player who's going to act as more of a creator for the others. You also want someone that's going to have a high degree of work rate. Now, they can afford anybody. They can afford to pay whatever they want for Haaland, for Vlavic. They could buy both of them. I think Isak makes the most sense, though. He's got the best work rate of the three. He's the most selfless of the three. I think he makes the most sense. I would say N Naziri second. He's not on the same level, but he's a very good player and he's got really high rate, high work rate. His hold-up play is great. And I would say Darwin Nunes third. For Arsenal... You also have to factor in where Arsenal are. We've got to be realistic about this. Arsenal are not going to get Haaland. It's very unlikely they'll get Vlahovic. I don't think they'd pay the money for a Simeon. Dybala wouldn't go there. Chiesa wouldn't go there. But I do think N. Naziri fits really well with what they've got. I think Jonathan David is probably the best fit. Jonathan David's movement his finishing ability, his ability to drop into different areas of the pitch and link play. I think Jonathan David won. N Naziri two. And they could get Guri, they could get Hlasek. I don't think they need either of them because they've got Martinelli back fit. I don't know if they could afford him or if they could attract him, but Isak would be great there. I'll say him third because I think he's unlikely to go there. David and then Naziri are the two. Different types, very different types, but depending on how they want to play, if he wants to persist with 4-2-3-1 and Naziri is the one, I think Arsenal should play 4-3-3. 
I'd love to see Arteta be really brave and play 4-3-3 with Smith Rowe and Odegaard as eights. I'd love to see him try it. Go and dominate the ball. Why not? This is what you're meant to be all about. I'd like to see David as the middle point in a in a 4-3-3 with Saka and Martinelli either side of him. Um, Dortmund, again, you're looking at budgetary restraints. They're not going to get Vlahovic. Isak was there and, and won't go back. They're not going to get a Simeon. Darwin would be the the one who's a perfect replacement for Haaland for them, budget-wise. So I'll go Darwin 1, and Naziri 2, Jonathan David, different type, but him as a 3. They need that number 9. I would say those are the 3. For Bayern Munich, this is obviously working on the assumption that Lewandowski will leave. Haaland is 1. Vlahovic is 2. And I think Darwin is 3. For AC Milan... Obviously, a lot depends on Zlatan. He seems to want to stick about another year. But I still think Jonathan David's a great fit there. Him and Raphael Liao combining could be very, very impressive. I would say Adam Klozik is a, the perfect signing for them. And I really like Amin Guri there. But I, I, that's what I'll go with. I'll go David, Guri second, Klozik third. Juventus, I think, are financially in serious trouble because of the investigation into their uh, affairs, their deals. I could see them having to call off the Chiesa deal and maybe the Locatelli deal as well. The fact that clubs take these bizarre two-year loans with then obligations to buy for what would be less than the player is worth in two years has always been a bit odd. But if Juventus are just Juventus and they're going and looking for players to fit how they want to play, I think Haaland has to be won. Haaland with Dybala off him, Kulisevsky one side, and Chiesa the other, I think that's absolute death for everybody as it goes up against them. Um, I would say I would say Darwin 2 Vlahovic 3 for Juventus that's what I would go for and then Liverpool so again we have to be realistic Liverpool are not going to get Erling Haaland they, do not, they don't like dealing with Mino even though the relationship isn't as toxic as it was they just who wants to deal with him so Erling, I would take off the table. I would take Vlahovic off the table as well. I don't think Liverpool will, will overpay for him. Even though they do like him, I don't think they'll be willing to overpay for him for the fee that is currently being demanded by Fiorentina. I think Chiesa is, is one. You can move Mane into the number nine spot and go Salah right, Mane nine, Chiesa ten. Or Chiesa on the left. I think Darwin Nunes is number two. Salah right, Nunes through the middle, Mane off the left. I can see real cases for any of Isak, Felix, and Naziri, 
David or Dybala at Liverpool. But Dybala is 28, will want mega money. So that's a no. And Naziri is really good. He'd be a good fit, but AFCON. Liverpool already lose Salah and Mane to the AFCON. So rule him out. David. He's having a good season. He's versatile. He can play left side as well as through the middle. So he's got to be considered. Isak is still a bit raw. Not quite at the level where he's approaching finished product sort of status. I really like him. I really like Isak, but I'm going to say Joe Felix. I'm going to say Joe... Hmm. Do you know what? I'm not. I'm going to say a sec. As much as I love Joe, and I've just said I would take him in a heartbeat, and I absolutely would, I think Isak offers a different dimension. So I would say Chiesa 1, Darwin 2, Isak 3 for Liverpool. Um, Ragev, where would you rank Thiago when compared to Pirlo, Scholes, Xavi, Xabi Alonso, and Modric? I would put him ahead of Xabi Alonso. I would put him ahead of Modric. He's behind Xavi for sure. Him to 30 versus Pirlo to 30 is closer than people might think. I would say it goes Xavi 1, Skulls 2, Pirlo three, but I think that's close. Thiago four, Modric five, Alonso six. Also, would you like Thiago to stay with Liverpool for four to five years as a mentor to young players and hopefully, like like Pirlo, be brilliant until he's thirty five, thirty six? Yeah, I, I absolutely would. I would I would happily have him at Liverpool for as long as he wants to play, um, because I he's just he's a joy to watch. He is a joy to watch. Watching players of that caliber of not just technical ability but intelligence. That is that that for me is 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 an absolute joy. Um KR99, who is your all-time favorite non-Liverpool player who played in the Premier League? <laughs> Ragev says it's either Roy Keane or Michael Essien. Um Keane is up there for sure, but that's more like as a player. It's got to be Henri. Like, I don't know how it couldn't be Henri. What a phenomenal gift he was to the Premier League. Like, if I look at Manchester City, my favourite Manchester City player of the Premier League era is David Silva. My favourite Chelsea player is Gianfranco Zola. Arsenal, Henri, just ahead of Burkamp. Just ahead of Burkamp. West Ham. I like De Canio, but... I think Michael Carrick. I know he wasn't there all that long in the Premier League. He moved on to Spurs and then United, but Michael Carrick. 
United, Keane, Skulls. I know it wasn't great, but I loved when Varane was there. I just could watch Varane play all day. Neves at Wolves. Berbatov at Tottenham. Do you know what? Berbatov might be very close to the... Just from a... From an aesthetic point of view of watching them play, I, I adore Berbatov. Uh, Leicester, I would say... I mean, when Mares was there, he was just sensational. Always like Steve Guppy. <laughs> Strange it might seem. Aston Villa, Paul McGrath, without a shadow of a doubt. Crystal Palace, it's Wilf. Uh, Brentford, well, they've only been in the league this year, so Ivan Tony. Brighton. Doesn't play enough, but I love watching McAllister. Uh, Basuma's probably the one I'd go with, though. Everton, Lukaku, without question. Uh, Southampton, I mean, he's, he's a... Weirdo these days, but Matt Letizier was just... Letizier was just special. Uh, Leeds. Harry Kuehl. Yeah, Harry Kuehl was just different. Watford. Young Ashley Young. When he broke through there, he was just different class. Uh, Burnley. That's a tough one. That is a tough one. Probably say Tarkovsky. Uh, Newcastle, Beardsley, no doubt. And Norwich. I loved Rule Fox. I absolutely loved Rule Fox. He was so, so good. I would say Henri is my favourite, but it may just be because he's the best. Burkamp was a joy. Silva, Zola... Uh, I'll say Berbatov just because there was just something about watching a fella play at his own pace, completely, you know, unfazed by everything around him. Everything the ball got to him, you kind of got the impression he'd been standing around having a cigarette waiting for the ball. Um, just such a relax. I'll never forget watching him play in a Champions League game. He was on the bench. United were losing at home. Ferguson was just in absolute horrors at what was going on at the pitch. And he summons Berbatov from the... from Berbatov is warming up. He summons him up and he gives him a, a strong talking to, a real motivational speech. And Berbatov is nodding away. Yep, yep, no, definitely, yep, yep. And Ferguson's kind of trying to G him up and get him psyched for the game. <laughs> Berbatov gets stripped, stands in the touchline, looks around. Whoever, I can't remember who it was that came off. And normally in that kind of situation, a player, you know, the manager's just been in his ear. It's a big Champions League night. He sprints onto the pitch. Berbatov kind of sauntered onto the pitch, real relaxed, real slow. And Ferguson just looked like he couldn't believe what was going on. But to this day, I maintain the best front three the Premier League has seen 
There's been some great ones. Salah, Firmino, Mane, great. Sterling, uh, Aguero, Sane, great. Ster uh, Sterling, Suarez, Sturridge, great. I maintain the best front three, the most perfect balanced front three that I've seen in the Premier League. Carlos Tevez, Dimitar Berbatov, Cristiano Ronaldo. Those three together, they were sensational. And they had Rooney as the fourth option. They didn't play together enough because they had Rooney. And Rooney had to play for reasons not only to Alex Ferguson. Um, right, one more question then. Your all-time 11 to never win a European Cup versus your all-time 11 to never win a Champions League. Players selected have to played for a team competing in their respective competition, even if it was just for one season. Oh, I'm going to need to think about this. Well, okay. Um, see, this rules out the great Liverpool team of the 80s, the John Barnes, the, the late 80s, John Barnes, Beardsley, etc., etc. Um, I'm going to need time to think about this. I will tell you what, I will have a think about this and I will do this tomorrow before me and Guy get started previewing the weekend's games. So I will do that one tomorrow. Um, but thank you for the question. I, I do greatly appreciate it and I will get to it tomorrow. Uh, right, that's it for me. So just the two games tonight as things stand. Chelsea versus Everton. Liverpool versus Newcastle. Do you know what? While we're here, while I'm thinking, I'm just going to do the gossip because, you know. Why not? Why not? It is my show and I'm allowed to do the gossip if I want. And then I'll let Guy go and do whatever he wants to do. Uh, Newcastle have become increasingly confident of signing Kieran Trippier from Atletico Madrid next month, says Football Insider. That might be reason to rule that one out. Uh, Thomas Tuchel says he will contact Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. They work together at Dortmund. Aubameyang had his best form under Tuchel. Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta is open to offers for Aubameyang but the Gunners may have to wait till the summer to let him leave as they would prefer to bring in a replacement first. That tells me there's no money for January. Tottenham boss Antonio Conte is trying to sign Lorenzo Insigne, whose contract at Napoli runs out in the summer. Move Son to the right. Son, Kane, Insigne could be interesting. I'm not sure about a 30-year-old Italian. I said to say this, and I remember Zola was 29, 30 when he arrived at Chelsea. I'm not sure about Insigne in the Premier League, though. Barcelona are preparing a move for Borussia Dortmund's Erling Haaland. They might as well just attempt to buy Pele. Uh, Manchester City are interested in Haaland, but we may not be willing to spend enough to get him. It's the wages that are putting everybody off. Arsenal, Tottenham and Manchester United are set to move for Dusan Vlahovic after he rejected the highest contract in Fiorentina history. Tottenham will only buy him if Kane leaves. Chelsea's Antonio Rudiger, who has six months left on his contract, has confirmed he was considering leaving the club before Thomas Tuchel was appointed manager because he couldn't get in the team when they played a back four because he wasn't good enough. Jurgen Klopp says England defender Joe Gomez will not join Aston Villa in the January transfer window. I think we all knew that. Uh, RB Leipzig midfielder Amadou Hydera has fueled rumours linking him with Manchester United after praising the club's interim manager, Ralph Ranić. Good for him. West Ham are interested in signing 
Fiorentina's 24-year-old defender, Marcus Sinisi. I don't know much about him, to be honest. This is a good one. Inter Milan forward Alexis Sanchez could return to Barcelona on loan with Luke de Jong moving to Inter. This is such nonsense. There's no way that's going to happen. No way it's going to happen. Number one, why would Inter want Luke de Jong? Secondly, Alexis is a decent squad player for them. Nat Phillips was prepared to leave Liverpool in the summer, in January rather, in search of regular football. Good, goodbye. Middlesbrough are in talks, signed two mystery strikers. This is Football Insider again, talking rubbish. Juventus are interested in Mauro Icardi from Paris Saint-Germain. I did miss a question. The Langstar, I did miss yours. That is my bad. Um, let me just quickly do this one. The, the Athletic have published their top 10 players in the Premier League based on general talent, not just form they've been in for the past few weeks. I saw this yesterday. I did mean to do this today, and I'd forgotten until I saw this. So their list is as follows. Salah, De Bru- Salah 1, De Bruyne 2, Trent 3, Kante 4, Virgil 5, Bernardo 6, Canseo 7, Mane 8, Foden, sorry, Cristiano 9, Foden 10. Um, this is tripe, to be honest. Like, if we're talking overall, there's no way Virgil is fifth. Virgil is higher than that. Virgil was a top two player in the league before his injury. Top three at worst. So Salah won, KDB two, Virgil three, Bernardo four. Like Kante just isn't in the top ten. Not anymore. People have forgotten the season that he had last year. Because they won the Champions League. If Chelsea don't win the Champions League, nobody is talking about N'Golo Kante's great season. Because outside of the Champions League and a handful of league matches, he wasn't good last season. Youngman's son should be on. I, I don't know how. Well, what is Cristiano Ronaldo doing there? Youngman's son is a much better player than him. Bruno Fernandes should be in the top 10. Mane should not, based on the last year. Well, to be fair, this season he's been really good. Last season he was awful. I'll take Mane as a 10. Foden, it's too early to include him. I'm sorry. I love Phil Foden. I'm not including him. I'll go Mane as the 10, in the 10 spot. Um, what if it's, hang on, let me see. Salah, I need to write this down because my memory fails me at times. Um... Salah 1, KDB 2, Virgil 3, Bernardo 4. Okay. I think Son is 5. I'll go Trent 6, Canseo 7. Bruno's nine, Mane's ten. If we're talking overall, Romelu Lukaku is number eight. I'm sorry. I know he's not having a good season. I get it. Fine. You could go Harry Kane either, but I'm going Lukaku. So I've got Salah, KDB, Virgil, Bernardo, Son, Trent, Canseo, 
Lukaku, Bruno and Mane. Oh, you know what? Just put Kane instead of Lukaku. There we go. Harry Kane, number eight. Bruno, number nine. Mane, number ten. That's the list. That's me. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.